So I've said this before, but I'll say it again. One of the things that I love about Jesus's ministry is that he told a lot of stories. He told a lot of stories. So instead of speaking in principles and axioms like a lot of communicators today do, Jesus chose to communicate most of the time in the form of short stories that we call parables. And his stories were simple, they were straightforward, they were taken from everyday life, and yet, as many of us know, they conveyed very powerful spiritual and relational truths directly from God. And one of my favorite stories is one that he told about a businessman who was into agricultural manufacturing. It's found in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Let me fill you in on the story. As the story goes, this businessman had experienced some phenomenal success, going from a small business to a medium-sized business eventually, and some of you can relate to this, a very large business, so large that he ran out of space to hold his agricultural supplies, and he didn't know what to do. Now, backdrop real quick is that this guy was a very, very driven businessman. He lived for his business. I know that's hard to picture in America today, but just go with me on it. This was a guy who lived for work, and he worked to live, to the point that it had become an all-consuming passion of his life. And so faced with a choice of pulling back and reprioritizing his life when he ran out of warehouse space and focusing on some more significant issues like God and relationships around him, or continuing to pour everything that he had into his business and build more warehouse space, he chose the latter. And his reasoning was simple supply-side economics. He thought, the more that I have to supply, the more security and money that I will have so that someday I'll be able to sit back and enjoy life and then maybe then focus on life's more important issues. And as Jesus tells the story, the only hitch was is that this man did not know any more than any of us do that his life was about to come to an end. Jesus never tells us how his life was going to come to an end, whether it was from cancer or a sudden heart attack or maybe getting hit by a chariot or something like that. We don't know, only that his life was going to end seemingly premature, and not only was all this man had worked for going to go for nothing, but he wasn't prepared for the life to come. And Jesus ends this story by giving us a very profound principle. Look up here on the screen, Cactus and Venue, look up on your screen. Look at how Jesus ends this story in Luke 12, verse 21. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A profound story with a profound point. So we're in a series, as I mentioned earlier here, that uh, we're calling What Jesus Said. We're taking a look at what Jesus said about some topics that I believe are important to you and I today. Things like anger, worry, justice, the poor, and today, as we're going to see, success. And there's probably no topic more poignant, and I think pointed, toward 21st century American life than this idea of success. And so notice with me the first, first truth that comes out of this story that Jesus told us, and it's this. Look up here on your screen, and that is that God has wired us from creation to experience some success in life. 
This is really the starting point in unpacking Jesus' story on this idea of success, and that is to state it positively, God has wired us and created this world for us to experience some success. And the reason that I start here is that one of the first things you notice when you look at this parable or the story that Jesus told us is that when you look close, he is not faulting this man for attaining and experiencing success in life. No, as we're going to see, what he faults this man for is the response to his success. And that's a really important distinction. Uh, But the idea that this guy experienced success in life receives no judgment from Jesus at all. It was only what this guy did in response to his success. And and this is an important thing to note here. uh, Because in a world that's enamored and even obsessed with vocational success and making more money and acquiring more assets and getting the next promotion, Christians, I find, have gone to the opposite extreme. Have you noticed that? Uh, Because that's all about materialism and and ambition and things like that, we kind of get really holy, at times even more holier than thou, and we overlook the fact that God does applaud success and that he's wired this world, made this world, for us to experience success when we put our hands to something, our head to something, or even our heart to something. If you doubt this at all, uh, look at what Genesis 1 verse 28 says. This is the day that God created humankind in his image, and look at what he says. It says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, here it is, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Link that all together. Be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. In other words, this is inarguable. God says, look around you at this wonderful world that I have made for you. And as you do, let your mind and your heart begin to dream about what you can do with the resources that I have provided, both in this world as well as in you, in the gifts and talents that I have given you. And once these dreams and desires take root, create, produce, build, barter, sell, and then build some more. And all the while, you're going to find some satisfaction from the fruit of your labors because that's how I've made this world for each one of us to do something and to find our niche and find some of our satisfaction in in, in what we do. This was God's original plan from creation, folks, and we all get to participate, and he hopes, don't miss this, that we all get to experience some success in what we do with the gifts and the talents that he has given us. You know, none of us were there, but I I kind of imagine that initial creation sequence after Genesis chapter 3, the fall, as you get into Cain and Abel and then humanity starts to explode. I I wonder if it didn't work this way for humanity in those early days, that somebody would be looking at an empty field, you know, because there was nothing built at that time. And they would notice resources like wood and metal and stone, and then they'd draw up a plan for how to build a habitat or a domicile. And eventually that person would be known as an architect. They found their niche. But then somebody else would come along and say, you know what, I can take that wood and that stone and, and, and those resources, and I'm good at building. I can build you that house. And we'd call that person a builder. 
And then somebody else will come along and say, you know what, I know where to get more of these materials. There's a quarry over there or a mill that I can build. And we would call these people manufacturers. And then there'd be somebody who would say, you know what, you're going to have to pay for that. (laughs) And so you're going to need to get some money for this. And we would call them bankers and accountants. And then carrying this even further, eventually uh, somebody would get hurt. So we'd need a doctor. And then people wouldn't disagree because it's a fallen world, so we'd need lawyers. Yep, that's where they came from. (laughs) And the list goes on and on and on. You get the picture. At some point, everything that you and I have today eventually got created by God's wonderful creation, you and I. And again, this is richly theological. The reason is, is because God wants us to experience some success. And history, especially history in the last 100 years of our world with the Industrial Revolution and the Technological Revolution and now the Digital Revolution, has truly taught us the incredible potential of what human beings can create and produce when they put their mind to it. And so please see, and this is our starting point, you and I are wired from creation and made in God's image to experience some success, to discover what we're good at, and then through that, and our gifts and our talents subdue and have dominion over this earth and make something of our lives. Jesus never faulted the man in our story for experiencing some success, not at all. And it was this man's response, as we're going to see in just a second, that Jesus had issue with. But the fact that he was successful, I believe, was the starting point of Jesus' story, and he was glad. So you and I need to stop redefining success as Christians I, in my research over the years, I have uh, you know, heard Christians kind of redefine success to try to fit a, a more softer worldview. What do I mean by that? Uh, Norman Vincent Peale years ago defined success this way. He was a Christian minister. He said, success is the development of a mature and constructive personality. Success is the development of a mature and... I know what he's getting at there, but I think to myself, why do you have to redefine it that way? As we're going to see in a minute, God wants us to go from success to something else, which is going to be a lot more important. But success is always what it has been. And that is that when you take your gifts and talents or take resources of this world and do something with them that allows you to experience, well, success. And so look up here on the screen. I love how Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of Britain, very successful herself, said it. I thought this was good. She says, look at a day when you are supremely satisfied at the end. It's not a day when you lounge around doing nothing. It's when you've had everything to do and you've done it. And I think most of us can relate to that, even myself as a pastor. When I get to the end of a long day and I'm what Bill Hybels calls good tired, meaning that I've done a lot and I feel good about it, but I'm very tired, that's success And it's okay to experience that. And so the first thing that you and I need to realize from Jesus' story here is that God has wired us to experience some success in life, and this is a good thing. Now, as I've been hinting to all along, however, there is a lot more to this story, however, and it's obviously Jesus' point. And so notice with me a second thing that comes out of this power-packed parable of Jesus's, and that is that God has wired us to experience a lot of significance in our most vital relationships. 
you're going to notice a very key play on words here, that God has wired us to experience some success, but the point of Jesus' parable is that God has wired us, however, also to experience a lot, meaning more, of significance, where? In our most vital relationships. And so notice with me that this is really the point of this entire parable. That Jesus' issue with this man in the story here is that he didn't move from success to significance ever in his life. And so after this man decides to allow work to continue to be an obsession in his life and to build bigger and bigger warehouses just focusing on his success, it's interesting, God calls this man a fool. We learned a few weeks ago that the word fool here is a very harsh and biting term in the New Testament. It literally means you're empty-headed. You're an idiot, to use today's terminology. And the reason that God calls this man a fool is very, very interesting. Look at verse 20 of Luke 12. Look up here on the screen. This is very revealing. As Jesus tells the story, he says this. He says, but God said to him, again this man, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And so don't miss, as I said earlier, Jesus is not faulting this man for his success. I mean, this man simply worked hard, he got blessed, and he experienced the fruit of his labors. But by only focusing on vocational success, the building and storing of more crops, and not focusing, as we're going to see in just a second here, the more important areas of life, like relationship with God and relationship with key others around you, this man came to the unexpected end of his life, and Jesus asked him, you know, the things that you have now prepared, whose are they going to be? And that's a great question. In other words, now that you're at the end of your life and you weren't expecting it, all that you've built, all the success that you've had, what's going to happen to it? And the obvious answer in this scenario here is that it won't be yours because you're going to be dead. I mean, we've all heard that old saying, you can't take it with you. And so Jesus is saying that here. They're not going to be yours because you're going to be dead. And they're probably not going to be others, at least others that were close to you, because you didn't really have anybody close to you. All you ever did was work and build bigger warehouses. And so Jesus' issue, don't miss this, with this fictitious man in his story is that he didn't prioritize relational significance, significance with God, and significance with other people around him over and above his obvious success. And this overt emphasis on relational significance over and above success, what you need to know, folks, is all over the place in the Bible. I mean, if there's one message that the Bible gives, it's this idea that significance always trumps success. And that significance isn't found in your success, but that significance is a relational animal. It's a spiritual animal, and it's always going to be found in God and in others, ideally in personal relationship with God and others. So look up here on the screen. Cactus and Venue, look at your screens. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. It says, "'Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding.'" 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You know, many of us have heard that Proverbs 3 passage a lot over the years. It's a very common uh, passage. But, but most times I hear it quoted, they leave out verse 8. It, it, did you catch that there? Verse 8 says, if you prioritize God, if you find your significance in God, what? It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I, I call this I dog, being independently dependent on God. That's the goal of life independently dependent on God. Why? Because when we find our significance and satisfaction in him, our souls settle down and we've now come home. And then as you're chewing on that, check out Genesis 2.24. You guys know the verse, the very first marriage in the Bible, when God called men and women to find significance in a lifelong monogamous union with a soulmate of the opposite sex. Look at Genesis 2.24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and they will become one flesh. Whoa. So, so it's saying there we find our significance in a human relationship with somebody else uh, who, who, can, who can love us and know us and give us the relational security that our souls long for. And then in continuing this quest of significance, look at Proverbs 17.6, a passage that many of you haven't read over the years. It kind of completes it when it says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. And do you get a sense of significance here? that is experienced back and forth among at least three generations mentioned here? Grandparents are supposed to feel like royalty with their kids. And many of you can relate to that. And children get to glory in their fathers. And then when you read Proverbs 31, you know they glory in their mothers as well. This idea that we find significance even in our family relationships. And the Bible adds close friends as well. And all I can say is that when you get this, when you get the distinction between success and significance rooted in Jesus' parable here and then seen in the other scriptures, what a challenge this becomes to you and me today. Because we don't jettison success as many Christians tend to do in their thinking. Well, I guess God doesn't want me to be successful. No, not that's not the idea. It's just that we got to make sure that significance is always leading the way, that God is always leading the way. And yet you and I are bombarded in a culture, and tell me if this isn't true, that constantly tells us that success is more important than significance. They never say it like that. But we live in a world in which it's flipped on its head. We live in a world today in which people are constantly trying to convince us that you need to succeed. And kind of like Jesus' parable, once you succeed, then, maybe then, you can focus on, you know, your relationships, your kids and your friends and God and church and things like that. That's why a lot of people abandon church in their 20s. You know, I hear people say all the time today, oh, the church is in trouble, all the 20-somethings are leaving. I got news for you. The 20-somethings have been leaving for thousands of years. It's not new. It was that way in your great-grandparents' generation, your grandparents, your parents. I, I mean, we've seen that we can demographically prove that. You feel this pressure when you're 20 to succeed, and everything else takes a back seat. 
It's just that if you never grow up and start pursuing significance again, then you're just like that person in Jesus' story. Eventually, you got to settle down in your own bones and say, you know what? My life is more important than just my success. Yeah, God wants me to have it, but significance is the name of the game. Uh, Ben Patterson is a a middle-aged campus pastor at Westmont College in in, in Santa Barbara, California, and he's a regular writer for some of the Christian magazines that I read. And uh, a while ago, he he told a story in one of his articles uh, of something that happened to him in in the earlier days when his kids were really young. And I find this story kind of classic. Maybe you'll relate to it too. He he says, Blythe is a desert town on the Arizona-California border, My family and I were on our way back from vacation when we stopped at McDonald's in Blythe. Loretta, my wife, asked me to hold Mary, our 18-month-old, while she went to the restroom and our three sons were playing in the play area. He says, picture me holding my daughter a few feet from the restroom doors as the babe from Blythe emerged from behind those doors. She was gorgeous, tanned and dressed as well. Young women are wont to dress in the warm desert climates. And she was looking right at me, smiling warmly. He says, I straightened up and smiled back, flushed with adolescent conceit that even though I was much older than she was, I still must be a very attractive man. (laughs) He says, babes still take notice. Our smiles and eyes met for longer than a mere random encounter as she walked past. Then I noticed my reflection in the mirror along the wall. And I saw what she was smiling at. It was me, all right, but it wasn't Ben Patterson, the mature hunk. It was Ben Patterson, Mary's daddy. He was middle-aged, a little lumpy, and holding a precious child. That's what delighted the babe. He says, my first reaction was embarrassment. You silly fool, you aren't what you thought you were. But as I continued to look in the mirror, I decided that I liked what I saw and that I liked what I think the babe saw. I liked being Mary's daddy. I like it a lot. Ditto for Dan and Joel and Andy. He says it's better to be a daddy than a stud. And my deflation turned to elation. Amen. I've gone through similar things, not like that, but I've (laughs) gone through things. Yeah. Trust me, I've never gotten that look, ever. (laughs) But I've gotten to the point in my 50 years of living where I've realized that I've experienced success, I'm no longer a young guy, and that the name of the game for me has got to be some type of transition from success to significance. Uh, Henry Nouwen, in his wonderful book on the prodigal son, says that when most of us read the story of the prodigal son, we either relate to the younger son, who was rebellious and then got grace when he returned home, or the older son, who was angry and bitter that the younger son got grace. But then he ends the book saying it this way. He says, but when will we start to relate more to the father? When will we grow up and realize that that part of the point of Jesus' story there was that we need to all become fathers and mothers who help welcome back returning prodigals and help the attitude of the older sons by growing up and becoming the fathers and the mothers ourselves. That was revolutionary for me about a decade ago to realize that I need to go from success to significance. So let me ask it. Let me ask you, what is it going to be for you 
success at the cost of significance, or some success with loads of significance, which is hard won, by the way, with God and others. Because you see, here's what Jesus is leading up to in this story. It's really the crux of the matter, and it leads to our third and final point, and it's this. Look up on the screen, and that's that Jesus says that at some point in our lives, there does come a choice, now don't miss this, between success and significance. It really does. God loves you that much. His grace is that much involved in your life that at some point you look close, God will present to you a choice between success and significance. And this is so important, again, to understand because we're not saying that one is right and the other is wrong because you really can have both in your life. But that one, as I've said, will outpace the other and so it does become a choice. As C.S. Lewis said so well years ago, life is about first things and second things. It's just that there's only one first place thing, and that is God and the significance that he gives us. And everything else needs to take second place status. And God loves us so much that he gives us that choice. And this is exactly, when you look close at what happened to the man in Jesus' story. He had allowed success obviously, to eclipse the significance that God designed him to experience in himself and with other people. And so because of this very real battle that wages in the soul of every person, Jesus says in this parable, and these are direct quotes, quotes that it's either going to be richness toward God or laying up treasures on earth. One will outpace the other at some point in your life. And so maybe now you can see, this is why Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. He was not saying money is bad. He's just saying that ultimately, you can't serve both. One is going to outpace the other. And the whole point of Jesus' teaching is that he hopes it is God. And so which one is it going to be for you? I think that one of the better books ever written on the subject of success versus significance, and many of you who've been around the Christian block for a while have already thought of this book, was written by a, a businessman by the name of Bob Buford in his famous book called Halftime. And at one point in this book called Halftime, Buford tells the story of a strategic planning consultant that he was using at a certain point in his very successful career as a cable television executive. And this consultant was one of the most brilliant in the field, known for his work with IBM and with Xerox and with Coke during all of their ascending days as they they became large companies. And one of the things that this consultant, whose name is Mike, uh, was big on was identifying the one thing in the box, he wasn't a Christian, just the one thing in the box that needs to take priority over everything else if you're going to succeed in life. So Mike would challenge companies all the time to, to just reduce down their vision for their company to the one primary thing that drives them and helps them succeed. So, for instance, true story, when Coca-Cola came out years ago with New Coke, and some of you remember that, and the nation rebelled, they called in Mike. And he quickly identified for them that they had naively believed that the one thing in the box that America loved about Coke was great taste, and so that better taste would make it even better. When in reality, the one thing in the box that America loved about Coke was that it was an American tradition an icon, if you will, just as it was. And they didn't want it changed. 
And so by Coke recognizing that one thing in the box, they were able to quickly recover and not mess with the taste of Coke. The one thing in the box. And so Buford brought this man, Mike, in at a very key point in in his life to plan the second half of his life to help him finish strong from the age of 40 on. And being very straightforward with this consultant, he shared with him that he was a strong Christian, very serious about his faith, and that he wanted to keep Jesus central in his faith. And so listen to Buford's own words at what happened next at a retreat with Mike, with Buford, Buford's wife, and Mike. He says, well, Mike took me at my word. He announced that we could not put together an honest plan for my life until I identified the one thing. He said, I've been listening to you for a couple of hours, and I'm going to ask you what's in the box. For you, I'm guessing it's either money or Jesus Christ. You need to tell me, if you can, which it is. And based on that, I can tell you the strategic plan and implications of that choice for your life. If you can't tell me, however, you're going to oscillate between these two values and be confused. Buford says, as simple as it sounds, no one had ever put such a significant question so, to me so directly. After a few minutes, which seemed like hours, I said, well, if it has to be one or the other, I'll put Jesus Christ in the box. He goes on to say it was an act of faith, and it was a daunting challenge to me to be open to change and adventure. Even more than that, it was a commitment to do something about the faith I already had. By acknowledging Christ as my guiding light, I'd invoked the promise that he would direct my paths no matter where they took me. And folks, this simple but profound decision that Buford made that day, really a choice, as he says, to go from success to significance, to place Jesus Christ as the one thing in the box, would literally alter the course of his entire life. Because being in a position for him to pull back on being a successful CEO and pour some of his time and energy into other pursuits, he actually started to do a lot more kingdom ventures and eventually starting an organization called the Leadership Network that has blessed churches and parachurches and Christian leaders now for years. And so it's a profound, profound thing that Buford experienced. And yet, whether one has the freedom to do what Buford did or not, please hear, is not the issue. The real issue that we need to take from Jesus' parable and the illustration of Buford's life is, are we today, you and I, even giving God room in our life to direct and to guide us into deeper significance by placing Him as the one thing in the box of our life? Because you see, when you make that choice, and it's the point of Jesus' parable, God will then direct you in whatever he wants for you, and you will find significance. And it might mean you pull back on some of your success, or it might mean that you stay right where you are. But the point is, is that he now is the one, as he says, who is Lord of your life. And so listen to what Buford goes on to say about this choice a little later in the book. I think I have it up here for the screen. Yep, look up here. He says, significance begins by stopping wherever you are in the journey to see what's in the box and then reordering your life around its contents. For the Christian, this may mean putting God in the box and then following wherever that decision leads. Unfortunately, most think a successful Christian businessman is a rich guy who gives a lot of money to the church. 
significance comes when that businessman finds a way to give himself to God, if indeed God is in the box. And I think that's the point. I love that last phrase, significance comes when a man or a person finds a way to give himself or herself to God, if indeed God is in the box. I got to tell you folks, it's, it's beyond the scope of this message, but even as a pastor, I have experienced Buford's halftime. I've experienced, even as a pastor, and my wife can attest to it, she's here today, this idea of going from success to significance. I came out of seminary in 1989 so fearful that I wouldn't succeed that I'm telling you for the first 10 years of my pastoral experience, all I did was try to please people. All I did was try to perform well. All I did was to try to make sure that I could succeed by growing my church and getting on the map and and, and doing all the things that I do well. And that's not bad. But eventually that stuff eats you up. And eventually I wasn't doing it necessarily to know God any better or even to love his church. I was doing it for me so that I could experience success. And at some point in the mid to late 1990s, after about a decade of doing this, I experienced my own little halftime at the age of 35. And I said, my life has got to go more in the direction of significance. And though it's for another story, that was my calling to become a senior pastor. Because I realized a lot of what I had done in the church to experience success was not preaching and teaching and leading, which is what God has called me to do. It was a lot of other stuff, which for me was not the right fit. And so 15 years ago, I took a bold step to leave the comfort of my pastoral position in Detroit and pursue a life of significance by doing what most people don't want to do, becoming a senior pastor and taking all the hits with that. And though some of you look at me today and say, oh, but you're successful, I got to tell you, and I I really mean this, I don't know how to convince you of this, I really don't care. I mean, half the days that I'm experiencing success, but all the other things that go with it, I think to myself, I wonder if there's some small church in Nebraska that would have me. Now, some of you are going to write from Nebraska saying we'd have you, but I do because I think to myself, success is not all that it's cracked up to be, amen? It's really not. I I mean, you get there and you go, this is it? This is it? I I don't think so. But significance, finding your significance in God and your satisfaction in Him and then having an awesome wife and three pretty good kids, I mean, that (laughs) is significant. That is significant. And then having a few close friends that are going to stick by you through thick and thin, that is significant. And I would take that over the success of a large church, whatever, any day of the week, because that's where life is found. And that fits your life as well. Some of you today are pondering this really hard. You're saying, what does this mean for me? I don't know. But if you can grab onto the handles from this parable of success and then God faulting this guy not for his success but not making the leap to significance, then you're there. You're right where God wants you. Here's my closing thought. Key to a life of significance is to give God full and unhindered sway in your daily world. Let me repeat that because I didn't write it down until this morning. Key to a life of significance is to give God full and unhindered sway in your daily world. The old-time writers would call it absolute surrender. And that's what Jesus was after here. That his will for you is to experience some success, but bigger is that you would experience significance, and it's only found in him. So what's the one thing in your box? 
Chew on that, and I hope you choose God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that gives us great, great confidence on our road to finding you and following you. And Lord, I thank you for Jesus and the amazing stories that he told us about how we can know you and find you and have seen today even find our significance in you. So I pray for these dear people. I pray for the folks at Cactus Campus and at our venue that are with us now and those online that God, that you would help all of us to ask that key question, have we gone from success in its pursuits to significance in our lives? Have we found our satisfaction in you and what you provide relationally? And Lord, if there's some decisions that need to be made for some of us here today, as I did years ago, as Buford writes about in his books, I pray, God, that we would boldly make those decisions and that today might be a defining moment between us and you where we placed you squarely as the one thing in our box and then allowed you to define our significance. Lord, may we not be shy to do that. And as we do that, Lord, as Lewis said, surprise us with joy and we'll give all praise and glory back to you. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all agree together by saying, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. See you next week.